Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today, John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Christopher Preble, Cato's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies. Their new book, co-authored with Trevor Thrall, is Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse and How We Can Recover. Welcome back to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. You write early in the book that Trump represented a break from the longstanding foreign policy consensus in Washington. What was that consensus and how did we end up with it? So I'll, t I'll start. The, the, uh, the consensus was that U.S. military power was essential to the functioning of the planet, everything from peace and security and rising life expectancy to uh, freer trade to, uh, you know, everything good that happened after the United States became a dominant military power um, is was sort of embraced by the bipartisan foreign policy establishment. Sometimes this goes back to the end of the Second World War and the creation of um, – uh, sort of the multilateral trading system and certain uh, alliances that rose out of the early Cold War period. Uh, others would focus more on the end of the the end of the Cold War when the United States had uh, unchallenged military supremacy at least for a good part of the 1990s and into the 2000s. Um, and again, the the notion was that U.S. foreign policy was intended not merely to make the United States safe and secure, but to to do something, you know, to make the rest of the world safe and secure. Um, and he questioned that. He seemed to doubt that the benefits that we derived from these exertions uh, were offset by the cost. And I mean, we've talked about, you mentioned the bipartisan foreign policy establishment. Um, it seemed like the most interesting part of that, I mean, we'll get into what he actually did, but is that it didn't hurt him that much in the polls that uh, it, it didn't alienate voters no on the contrary i think in the same way that barack obama's criticism of the iraq war at a time when his leading challengers in 2008 uh biden and and Kerry and, and clinton at all um supported the war his you know it helped him and in the same way trump being one of only two major candidates in the 2000 uh uh, 16 Republican race as uh, criticizing the Iraq war. I think it helped him. Uh, and perhaps everyone talks about this. We talk about in the book that Donald Trump went to South Carolina and in a Republican debate criticized a Republican president's war while standing next to that president's brother was sort of a key moment in the campaign. Um, and not, and again, it did not. It didn't hurt him and uh, arguably helped him uh, secure a win in that critical state and and the nomination. Yeah, so I think some of the unorthodox things that Trump said during the campaign were salient with voters. But other things weren't super salient but had been thought to have – you know, for example, when he said NATO was obsolete, that was perceived as something that would be disqualifying for a presidential candidate. Uh, but the public – didn't care. I don't think they don't. They're not driven to the polls or away from them uh, by whether or not we're a member of NATO. Uh, I just don't think it's a top priority of theirs. And that that kind of generalizes. There's a lot that the United States does in the world that Americans aren't really that informed about um, and don't really understand. And so many of the things that most 
uh, upset the foreign policy establishment out of Trump's campaign um, either got a thumbs up from the public or they didn't seem to care that much. How much of that success that he had was specifically about criticisms of Iraq in terms of like the public's perception, like Iraq, the public didn't like Iraq, but should we read that as the public generally doesn't like or at least isn't necessarily turned on by a foreign policy of the kind that gets us Iraq versus this is just, you know, this one war is unpopular, but across the board on the other things, they're fine with kind of the consensus. It's sort of hard to say. Uh, what I what I will say is that uh, presidents of the post-Cold War period that have campaigned on nation building at home and rejected adventurism in their initial campaigns tended to win. You know, Clinton, uh, it's the economy stupid. Uh, George W. Bush came into office campaigning in 2000 uh, saying humble foreign policy, no nation building abroad. Um, Obama came after him and had a huge leg up in the Democratic primaries, primarily I think because of his opposition to the Iraq war, which the other leading contenders uh, didn't have. And then Trump came in and, and uh, made similar comments. And so it seems at least if, to the extent that we can generalize this, that the public is um, happy to hear uh, criticisms of an adventurous foreign policy. But the extent to which it was the deciding factor or uh, people went to the polls for that reason, I think it's really hard to say. I don't know what you think. I think there are two – I would generally agree with John. I just sort of add two sort of clarifications or, or sort of extend that a little bit. First, from time to time, Donald Trump wasn't criticizing the war so much as the fact that we weren't winning them. And so you could interpret – uh, his remarks. I think this is especially true with respect to Afghanistan, and and somewhat less so with respect to Iraq. That um, if he were president, we wouldn't be in the same mess. Which is to say, we wouldn't still be trying, you know, sort of fighting to a draw for eighteen years. So that's that's and so if if I'm right about that, then that is not an argument for for withdrawal or by any stretch or or non intervention. It's a, it's an argument for expanding the war and doing so under the cover of. Um, well, now we've seen it under the Trump administration, sort of under the veil of, of secrecy and obscuring from the public what's actually happening in their name. The other point that I want to make is about the foreign policy establishment because Donald Trump did go after the foreign policy establishment, the bipartisan establishment. Running in the Republican primary, he was assailed, um, vo you know, vociferously by the by nearly every um, leading f uh, Republican foreign policy voice. Because of his opposition to the war in Iraq in particular. Uh, but this establishment had a lot to answer for. <laughs> uh, they had, uh, they did have a, at best, uneven track record. And this is the thing that, that President, that candidate Trump really went after. And I think that was a popular line. Uh, it's not, again, it's not so unique for a candidate to run against Washington. And it was easier for an outer borough New Yorker to run against Washington than for a sitting senator to do so. Very quickly before we move on, I'm sure we'll get to this, but it should be pointed out before we move on any further that Yes, Trump said some things deeply at odds with the foreign policy establishment during the campaign, but he also said things that were super hawkish and in line with the foreign policy establishment. What characterized his campaign primarily, I think, was inconsistency. So yes, he criticized the Iraq war. He said we shouldn't be involved in Afghanistan. Uh, he seemed to not 
uh, really like the fact that we're forward deployed in overseas bases all over the world. But he also said he's going to ramp up the air war against ISIS. He suggested we should attack uh, the families of terrorists, uh, that we should bring back torture. Um, and uh, so, you know, take the oil. There was take, a, take the take, oil. Right. There, there was a lot of things yeah. in there that, you know, it would be wrong to say that Trump was a determined uh, opponent of the foreign policy establishment. Okay, so the the foreign policy establishment didn't much care for him during the campaign, um, but the other people involved in foreign policy, the troops, the men and women in the armed forces, what did what did they think of him and of his rhetoric during the campaign? I think it's really mixed. I mean, I think we have to recognize that the military is not a monolith, that it is, uh, you know, it's a very, very diverse group of men and women, in fact. Um, they, I, the data that I have seen suggests that, uh, it, you know, again, partisan affiliation is, is much more of an explanation of, of whether or not a person supports a particular candidate. I think that's still true. Um, the troops are tend to be younger. Uh, Trump does not score well among, uh, sort of millennials in general. And so the, to the extent that the average, um, you know, uh, soldier, sailor, or airman, marine is, you know, under 40 years of age, it's probably not, does not correlate well, um, to his supporters. Um, um, there's also an interesting difference uh, among the officer class between sort of mid-grade officers, that is to say, uh, majors and lieutenant colonels who have probably by now done somewhere between three and five uh, tours in either Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but have not yet been elevated into sort of the upper echelons of, of leadership, a real sense of frustration and just sort of just a sense of I don't want to say hopelessness. That's a little bit too strong, but a sense of what exactly are we doing and why are we doing it? And so if you have a candidate coming along saying things a lot like that, um, then it wouldn't shock me if they find that to be sort of appealing. Seems like a relevant point to ask about something relevant recently before we get kind of in more of the nitty gritty, the pardoning of – of uh, Chief Gallagher, I think his name is, and some other uh, war criminals uh, seems sort of vexing in many ways. Uh, I mean, Trump does a lot of things that are vexing, but especially in the case of one of these that had six seals come out against him and, and had been – what do we see that – how does that fit into the broader – scope of Trump or can we fit it in or is it just that Trump watched the guys on Fox News talk about this and decided he had to do something about it? Well, he was lobbied by a Fox News reporter or someone with a microphone, whatever you call those people, um, to to engage in this. Uh, I think he has some serious empathy problems and um, he also is a huge nationalist. So he's not one to welcome an opportunity to admit wrong or apologize Oh, and he has a he has, a, I mean, a real distaste for the rule of law. So the fact that these war crimes cases, I mean, some of them really gruesome details, uh, mutilating dead bodies, and uh, you know, it's it's really ugly stuff, uh, have went through the court process, and this is the the dispute that Trump and some people in his cabinet came to, is that Trump wanted to interfere in that process, and the others uh, wanted to let it play out on its own. And so, you know, it, in that sense, it's typical Trump. But it does seem—I don't know how you feel about this. It does seem out of the blue. Why would he get 
his panties in a bunch so much about this particular issue of 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 war crimes and trying to get war crime war criminals off scot free. Yeah, and, I, and to Chris, since you did serve, like if you're trying to court the military, I I think that that I don't think most military people would be in favor of this. I think it again. I think it really depends. I agree with you. I think I think most people see this as an interference in the traditional sort of justice system, the military justice system, as its own special sort of idio, idiosyncrasies. But it's still based on the on the on you know principles that we all understand. Um, and there's you know there's this notion of good order and discipline, and violating those rules um, is a threat to the institution. Um, uh, and ultimately undermines national security. Um, I think this is yet another example where the president's lack of sort of preparation in general for the office leads him to be easily swayed by a well-timed, um, uh, you know, media entreaty, yeah. media appearance by someone who has his ear at the moment. So what now do we, are we able to say <laughs> what is the Trump doctrine or what is the, what is Trump's is there such a thing? Oh, yeah, is there such a thing? That's one of the points we try to make in the book. I think the office of the president has a tendency to – I mean it adds a lot of prestige to a person. And um, there's a tendency to just assume that they have information at their disposal. They've studied the issues. You know, They know what they're doing. This is their jobs. And I think there's a tendency to assume that Trump has more grasp – over the national security issues over which he now has ultimate authority than he actually does. Um, he's not lo thought long and hard about the US role in the world and he doesn't really understand how the world works. Uh, and so um, the Trump doctrine such as it is, is a mix of inconsistent, um, uh, contradictory impulses, uh, ad hoc policymaking. Uh, refusal to engage with the interagency inter process, which makes even the kinds of policy moves that maybe Chris and I uh, are amenable to unworkable. I'm thinking specifically of his uh, multiple attempts to withdraw from Syria, which he did via social media as opposed to a thorough interagency process, which would have allowed a a withdrawal to actually be accomplished. So it's a kind of a mix of uh, sort of scattershot impulses and lots of domestic considerations rather than a coherent vision of how to secure the United States in the world and what role we should play abroad. He doesn't have a firm set of views on that. Can I can I weigh in on the the the, the interagency process? That phrase sort of sounds like uh, uh, fingernails on the chalkboard. Uh, I suspect for many listeners, and sometimes for me too. So here's let me offer a, a brief defense of the interagency process, by which we mean the body of experts in the government who serve not at the pleasure of a particular party, but uh, who have acquired subject matter expert uh, expertise over many years and who, when the time comes, can be called upon to give advice to the commander in chief. 
That's the part that he doesn't have any interest in, uh, it seems. He uh, therefore relies on ad hoc uh, uh, sort of advice and commentary from people who are not genuinely experts. Now, you may recall that just a few minutes ago, I said that the foreign policy establishment had much to answer for. But that does not mean that every single person that has ever weighed in on foreign policy at any time in the last quarter century doesn't have any idea what they're talking about. And I think there's a, there's a danger that we are sort of witnessing play out where if you, in fact, have had any role in U.S. foreign policy over the last 25 years, then you are somehow not to be trusted to do anything or say anything and have anyone listen to you and take you seriously. But the issue of interagency processes doesn't begin and end there. It also includes trying to unite your own cabinet around a clear strategy and therefore get everyone on the same page so that policy can be implemented. The executive branch is a monstrosity. It's hard to get the president's orders specifically and identically uh, carried out because it's just such a massive bureaucracy with so many players. So it's important to get people together, like his own cabinet, understand what the president wants, understand why, understand the consequences, understand the possible uh, uh, unintended consequences, you know? And so um, he doesn't do that. And, and that's why many of his policies that he'd like to pursue or occasionally uh, articulate the desire to pursue uh, can't get carried out because this all this bureaucratic infighting and mixed signals and lack of information for the whole executive branch. You mentioned withdrawal from Syria via tweet, and and the tweets have been a striking feature of his foreign policy and commander in chiefness during this administration. I think it was the first one, the transgender military ban that he just tweeted out. Are are tweets military orders? Like how how is the military it seems like some of them they just kind of ignore and he he forgets about it or he goes away or you know, but like how are if you're a general and the commander in chief tweets out an order to his millions of followers, like how do you respond to that? How are you supposed to respond to that? There was some initial confusion uh, in in the government about how to respond to that. And w w the pattern that I've seen that is that people have learned that a tweet will come out. It might be wild and erratic and a, a, and a radical 180 degree turn from what policy was. But especially for the military, I believe, they wait until a formal order has been issued by the president in the way that it used to be. Uh, and in the interim, if they're questioned on why aren't you pursuing this policy, how are you going to implement this policy that Trump has just tweeted out? What they say is tweets aren't orders and I'm waiting for the formal process. So a lot of these times, you know, Trump's staff will carry out the order in an official way. Sometimes uh, not though, sometimes it never goes anywhere. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So but you do we we've identified obviously the trying to get a handle on the man, which is kind of what you guys do in the book if you're trying to figure out. We always have these great you know, things you study if you do a PhD in, in international relations. We have realist foreign policy and all these things. Um, but Trump is kind of a cult of personality in this, in this situation. So understanding him is about understanding his foreign policy. And so you identify some of his thinking, uh, zero sum coming from some of his business practices. Uh, I think one of your really insightful observations, 
if you are zero zero sum and you view people as you know you have to destroy your enemy or not um, in business or in war as opposed to cooperate with them, that means that people who are co- allies are get more criticism than people who are not allies. Um, and so, but so that one, and then we also have Jacksonian nationalism and militarism. Uh, so, so first of all, let's talk about the the zero sum thinking and how that works. Then, yeah. So. What I tried to do was find categories and descriptors that could explain Trump's uh, behavior and impulses on foreign policy. And since he hasn't studied the issues and, and, and doesn't, he doesn't fit into any of the traditional sort of categories that you mentioned. He's not a realist. He's not a um, liberal internationalist. He's, you know, he, he does, that doesn't apply to him. So, uh, but he believes it, that he is like the smartest person on the planet. So certainly does. Ever, and we've been ruled by idiots for a very long time. So. That's so an important fact, I think. I identified four frames. Uh, the first one, as you say, is zero-sum transactionalism. This means – this explains, for example, his mo- one of his most prominent and consistent views on trade. Uh, our win is your loss and vice versa and he doesn't – you know, trade deficits are bad and uh, we need to engage in protectionist uh, tariff measures and, and so on. Um, and, but it also boils over into security policy. So for example, his uh, veto of uh, Congress's uh, legislation that would have stopped our involvement in Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen, which is a terrible humanitarian crisis, uh, bombing civilians and all this kind of stuff. And we've supported them. His reason for uh, refusing to uh, allow that legislation to pass was that, well, the Saudis buy a lot of arms from us. And so – the millions of people that are suffering uh, in, in Yemen don't matter. The strategic case for supporting Saudi Arabia and the, weighing the pros and cons there is not relevant in, in this equation. But uh, you know, some fraction of 1% of US jobs go to building the weapons that we then sell to Saudi Arabia and therefore it's cool with him. The second one – is Jacksonian uh, Jacksonian nationalism and militarism. If you have a lot of time on your hands, you can go back to 2001. It might have been 2000. Uh, political scientist Walter Russell Mead uh, wrote a book, um, and he and he mentioned this, and he kind of defines it. And if you go back and read that, it is absolutely uncanny as a description. Yeah, of you Trump think he was writing? I, I, you have a long quote, and I'm like, the, he wrote this before Trump. I know yeah. it's, it's, he's not he's not doing a post mortem on the Trump no. presidency. He's he's describing this exact impulse. And one of the you know that engaged that that's nationalism, but also and people pointed this out in the campaign uh, when his Republican contenders during the primary uh, tried to challenge him, he would punch back with overwhelming force, lots of insults, and really go after him, make a nickname out of it. But neutral parties that didn't challenge him, he would kind of leave alone, and that's one important feature of Jacksonianism as a kind of uh, foreign policy tendency. Uh, the third is status and and prestige and respect. I looked through the uh, basically all of Trump's public statements and op eds and speeches from 1980 until uh, the 2016 campaign, and there's a consistent theme. I didn't expect to find this, but in my review of that material, again and again and again and again, you see him complaining that people don't respect us anymore, that we're not number one, that they're laughing at us, that we're being taken advantage of, and it's just super important for him to be respected. Uh, When he was persuaded to bomb the Syrian regime uh, as a consequence of their use of chemical weapons, 
you know, he got a lot of internal, he got a big internal status boost in terms of our own political system. Uh, the establishment praised him for it. It was bipartisan agreement and support in Congress. People like CNN's Fareed Zakaria said he's finally become president now. He's embraced the leadership role of America. And he loved that. And that's a kind of incentive to be more hawkish and interventionist, unfortunately. And the final one is the authoritarian mind. Political scientists have been studying the uh, uh, how authoritarian-minded people uh, carry out policy and government and heads of state for more than 70 years. And they have similar traits uh, in terms of how they manage their team, how they uh, deal with dissenting opinions within their administration. Um, and, but it also speaks to Trump's behavior. So for example, uh, his disdain for checks and balances. Uh, he tried to to, you know, he put immigration under his national security strategy for the first time in history. And so he, he wanted to shut down government uh, because Congress wouldn't agree to fund his wall, which is not necessary. And that's the kind of behavior that an authoritarian mind will engage in. But of course, he's also, you know, anyone that dissents from him is treasonous. People that have quit the administration or resigned are traitors. Um, you know, he calls the press the enemy, the enemy of the people. And this all kind of colors his worldview and actually does end up helping to explain some of his tendencies on foreign policy. Two quick points on that. John just did a terrific job of sort of unpacking these, these frames. It's, it's really brilliant. And, uh, and the, the last two points do go together. So the, the element of the authoritarian instinct is to equate loyalty to the person, the leader of the state as as loyalty to the state and that criticism of that individual amounts to treason. Trump has said this, uh, uh, tweeted it, uttered it in many different contexts. That is both consistent with his concern, his sort of authoritarian tendencies, but also relates to his obsession over status and prestige. The other point where we're recording this on a day when uh, a video has circulated of um, several um, state leaders at the NATO meeting uh, laughing about Trump. It's obvious they're laughing about Trump. His name is not uttered, but it's but the context in which they are engaging in this. Uh, within uh, uh, less than two hours of the circulation of this video is when the president left the the um, the meeting in a huff. Um, I don't think there's any way to to sort of observe that moment and not see this as a manifestation of his obsession over respect respect for him. Now, because of the office he occupies, he equates. Again, respect for him as respect for the United States of America. And I think in that respect, he does get some sympathy from not merely his supporters, but especially his supporters, but others that along those lines. And so that's, I think, to me, very dangerous, right? We do not typically equate the president of the United States with the United States of America. And yet that's where we are today uh, in, in large measure because of, of Donald Trump. I mean, this all sounds really bad, like like just a, a recipe for disaster, um, especially when this is the person who can issue belligerent orders that have to be immediately carried out with overwhelming force. But the years that he's been here have, 
I mean, foreign, there have been bad things on the foreign policy front, but they have not been the catastrophe that one might imagine if, John, you had set out this picture and said, this is the guy that's coming into office tomorrow. What do you think the next four years are going to look like? And I guess I mean, on that point, even, you know, he fires John Bolton and there's that, there was that story even where he kind of mocked him. It was like, well, I know you want to bomb them all, John, or something like this, which like, you know, at least he's hasn't. The thing that scares me is someone with this megalomaniacal personality being like, man, war is how people achieve greatness and how American presidents achieve greatness and I need a war. Um, so he hasn't actually really so he's, he's gone down that. expanded some of the wars that he inherited, um, but he hasn't altered our sort of posture in general. One quick correction. John Bolton resigned. Yeah. Trump subsequently claimed that he fired him because he's a liar and then shot out the John wants to bomb everything, which is perfectly true, but really as an insult and not as a substantive policy disagreement because Trump, uh, he may be ignorant of a lot of policy, but one thing he knows is what his base wants and his base is pretty strongly in favor of uh, pushing back against the kind of neocon hawks like John Bolton and the, and the Bush era neocons. To your question, I think there's probably two sensible explanations for why catastrophe hasn't uh, hit us. One is that uh, Trump is in way over his head. And so, you know, it would be really bad if a determined, uh, authoritarian mind with all of these bad tendencies was able to calculate and do things competently, uh, that would be really bad. Trump does, doesn't really have that. His strategy is not his thing. He flies off the handle, forgets about it, changes policy. So his erratic nature and his failure to actually hold a specific vision in mind about what we ought to do is part of why catastrophe hasn't befallen us. The second reason, this is a testament to how safe we are. The United States is so, so safe that we can elect a totally unfit guy like Donald Trump who has serious cognitive problems and uh, doesn't even, I think, understand the policy issues over which he has authority and still be super safe. And that's because we just don't face major threats. We're so powerful. We're so insulated from threats from the outside world we can make huge mistakes and still be okay. In fact, you can even apply that same lesson to previous presidents. You know, the Iraq war was certainly a catastrophe. It was a serious war crime, uh, killed hundreds of thousands of people in the region, uh, millions of people displaced, you know, countless lives just ruined. It was horrible. But other than the uh, debt that we incurred as a nation and the, the loss of life in terms of our military people, did we face serious consequences? No. If a, if a state made that kind of mistake in the past and wasn't as safe or as disproportionately powerful as the United States, I think it would have been ruinous. But this is just a testament, I think, to how, how much we actually don't need an adventurous foreign policy to be safe. It's that you can mess around with it and have a fool up there. And still be fine. And everything that John just said, and I would add one thing on the. On, so again, this is my job being sort of the EOR of the of the department. Um, <laughs> sort of you know the, the glass the glass is half empty. Um, precisely because the what the realists would call the structural constraints do not exist on the United States. There is not the same sort of formal pressure by other 
states. It's starting to change. But for the time being, the United States is still so extraordinarily safe and secure. It can do lots of really, really stupid things and not suffer ruinous effects. If, on the flip side, there is a political benefit, a domestic political benefit in engaging in bellicose behavior, even behavior that in retrospect would look foolish and and reckless, um, that still may be reason enough for the president to engage in that activity to mobilize uh, public support for his, you know, relatively under the water, underwater uh, uh, approval ratings. And one brief bow to put on that. We shouldn't understate the severity of the situation that we are in. You know, catastrophe might not be the right word, but we've seen very serious problems. Uh, Trump loosened the rules of engagement in our bombing campaigns in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria in the first two years of his uh, uh, administration, and civilian casualties shot up 215%. Um, he has eroded uh, very important democratic norms, which are technically not laws that you have to follow, but he's eroded them. Uh, he's whipped up the Republican Party to be something on the order of what you see in a banana republic, a collective exercise of uh, reality denial, refusing to recognize facts and truth. It's impossible to have a democracy that Works and there's supplicants to with him. that cult of personality. Like whatever happened to Lindsey Graham and and how he looks himself in the mirror every night is right. And we still and and Trump has further cemented the notion that the president can engage in hostilities abroad without Congress's approval. He can go to war without getting his constitutional require constitutionally required uh, approval from Congress. And so things are bad. Uh, maybe not catastrophe, but things are really concerning, I think. Chris, you mentioned the relationships with allies. Um, and so Trump's not going to be in office forever. He'll either be out Hoping. in a year <laughs> or forever, in, yes. you know, he'll get another term, but he's not. And, and so eventually we'll get a different president and those allies will still exist in some form. What's the, if you're, so you're, you're England or you're Canada or you're France or you're Germany and you've had a long history of dealing with the United States and suddenly you have a new leader who is acting very differently than the ones you're used to dealing with um, and, and has the issues that we've raised. What does that do to both your, your short-term relationship with the US and, and I mean, we talked about the, the mistake of like thinking that the the president is the country. Like, do they do foreign nations and foreign leaders distinguish those that this is this is Trump being Trump, but America is still America, or is this now like what they think of America? And then how do they think about what happens when the next person comes into office? Right. Well, I think a lot of it. De- it's a great question, Aaron. I think a lot of it depends on whether Trump is reelected. Um, uh, I think many of these countries concluded fairly early on that they could weather four years of the president of the United States being erratic and saying things from time to time that seemed to to sort of defy the strategic relationship that they had established over many uh, years and many presidents. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think if, if President Trump were to be reelected, I think there would be a more concerted effort by these countries um, uh, to uh, sort of fashion a plan B or an alternative. Um, but I think that's profoundly um, irresponsible uh, on their part. I, I wrote about this back in August of 2016. 
So after Donald Trump secured the Republican nomination, but long before he was elected president and when the betting market said he had about a one in three chance, less than at the time when I wrote it, it was about one in four chance of winning the presidency. I said, if you're Germany and you're France and you're Canada and you have based your security to some degree on the on the promise of the president of the United States and the United States of America to come to your defense in a time of need and the there is a uh, a one in four chance that the president of the United States does not honor that commitment it would be profoundly irresponsible for you to continue to base your foreign policy on that and yet that didn't happen uh instead you have some hedging uh, a bit, but not nearly what I would expect. What you saw immediately after his election, uh, Shinzo Abe is probably the best example of this, the prime minister of uh, Japan, uh, because in the past, Donald Trump had been quite critical of the Japanese, more more so than even the Europeans. We had to deal with them in the 80s as a right, businessman. Exactly yeah. right. And so Shinzo Abe sort of hugged Donald Trump as close to him as he possibly could. Uh, and it seemed to have worked. And he gave them what? Yeah. It was like a gold. Oh, yeah. No, gold he, he knew exactly. Golf club. Yeah. He, yeah. he made a hat that was a play on Trump's um, campaign. Uh, make, make America Great, great Again. Make America Great Again. Yeah. Make, America, make Japan, U.S. alliance great again. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. That's just yeah, playing himself. Abe, yeah. It knows that flattery works with this guy. Yeah. So I, 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 going back to your question, Aaron, I, I think that the the sense that the inertia and in the U.S. foreign policy establishment that still exists in, in spite of President Trump being at the head of it um, will sustain it. We know of stories of uh, even senior officials within the Trump administration going out to the allies in the immediate aftermath of his election and reassuring them uh, all the way, you know, including Vice President Pence, Secretary Mattis, Secretary um, Tillerson, sort of reassuring these allies, say the president doesn't really mean it. On the occasions when the president has actually said, for example, questioning Article 5, that's when the other administration officials officials have gone out of their way to claw that back, even such that he has to claw it back. So I think there are moments in time where this sort of a, a more responsible posture on the part of our allies to be more self-reliant and to be less dependent upon the United States for their security have been impeded by his own inconsistencies, but equally important by the comments and behavior of his of other members of administration who, frankly, are not committed to changing the way the United States engages with the rest of the world. This seems like a good opportunity to ask then about anything that he's done that's good. Is there is there a silver lining here? Are there positive steps that are being taken? So on the issue of the allies, Cato's foreign policy department has long argued that other nations should step up more in their own defense and not rely on U.S. either military presence directly there in bases or whatever or just you know the promise that we will bail them out. Um, and so maybe him pushing these people away eventually, like even if they're not willing to do it right now, if this is getting them to consider it, like maybe that's that's a good thing. So is that a good thing and are there other – potential good things that have happened yeah, in the last few years. And I'd like to add that that Kato's Carter has been critical of NATO yes. and also we're pro-diplomacy. So when we looked at, say, North Korea, like I'm not sure that not talking to them was the best was the best thing. And but but Trump goes to talk to him because he feels like he can make a deal with anyone. But but overall, that's not right. that's not bad. Right. Yeah, I would say that there are a few things that are are. So, for example, on North Korea, it's a good thing that we that can engage in face-to-face -face diplomacy. Uh, Trump's 
I think, shown himself incapable of carrying out complex uh, diplomatic overtures like that. And his administration, because of all the reasons we've talked about, can't really help him along. He did it in the reverse way. I mean, he met with Kim Jong-un face-to-face before any of the details of any kind of deal had been uh, worked out. And contrast that to Obama, where for in his diplomacy with Iran, you know, years and years went by, lower level diplomacy, secret talks, you know, formalized talks, all the way up the chain. And then finally, when they had figured out all the the kinks, they went uh, for for a deal. And Trump did the reverse way because he cares more about the state stagecraft than the statecraft of it. And weirdly, as you point out in the book, like with the the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal, which had tons of oversight, Trump goes to Kim Jong-un and, and because he tells him that the, we're going right. to – he's like, well, that's done. Basically yeah. proves that Trump's <laughs> yeah. criticism of the JCPOA was based on sand yeah. because he – all of the reasons he said it was a weak deal, he's embraced that when it comes to North Korea. So – but I can't praise him for these things. Here's what I can give him credit for. Maybe Chris disagrees. Maybe there's more narrow issues that uh, we can celebrate. But his – sheer disruptor status has shaken loose the consensus that we talked about on U.S. foreign policy. And, you know, an argument can be made that there was a gradual process taking place. I mean, the United States is a lower and lower share of the global economy. We are less and less capable of doing the kinds of ambition, ambitious things that we did in the past. Partly that's because of the, all the war fatigue that happened with Iraq and Afghanistan post 9-11. Um, but Trump's sort of erratic nature and his full-throated attack on the first principles of of U.S. foreign policy has shaken things loose a bit and it's made even determined advocates of primacy, of the status quo, of policing the world uh, grapple with the fact that maybe we need to pare it back or make wiser choices at the very least. So so two points, uh, sort of returning to the other parts of the subtitle. We've spent a lot of time about talking about how Trump made things worse, but the policy was broken. And I think we have to recognize there there is a, a danger. I have a fear that there will be a nostalgia for what came before Donald Trump and imagining away or ignoring the flaws of that foreign policy. So I think it's extremely important for us to establish, which is why my portions of the book really focused on the history, sort of setting the what came before and sort of unpacking. There were serious problems with that foreign policy, which John has already articulated, not the least of which is that we are constrained. We are our power is constrained. Our our economic power is constrained. We are not the hegemon in the same way that we imagine ourselves to be. We cannot determine and dictate to the rest of the world how to behave. And that is not going to change no matter who replaces Donald Trump and when they come along. Those things cannot simply be waved away. And by the way, with respect to the politics, we're already seeing some of this. So many in Washington find it in their interest to, uh, when Trump opposes something, to go deeply in the other way. So for example, Trump's quite a dove when it comes to Russia. And that's something that uh, Chris and I, I think, basically agree on. The Russia is a 10-foot tall and a major existential threat to the United States. We don't really buy that. Uh, their economy is about the size, you know, smaller than Italy's. Uh, they spend about $66 billion or $63 billion on the military annually. That Less than one-tenth what we spend. And, right? and NATO Europe, of course, outspends Russia 
by leaps and bounds. But they're a threat to many of their neighbors, as Ukraine has shown. And, right, and they've shown like that Armenia they can play weekend well. That's how they, they've, they've not – they've leveraged their, their sort of unique advantages in the gray zone to, to disrupt and that's what they you know. That, but what you see actually on both Republican and the Democratic side – is that they now see it as in their advantage to be hawkish on Russia because Trump is dovish. And so I fear that we might see more of that. Um, if there's, you know, this widespread criticism of Trump's, uh, disdain for ongoing wars in the Middle East, despite the fact that he continues to carry them out, but he has criticized them. And so that again, especially for Democrats, pushes them to be more in favor of active military measures in the Middle East because Trump's opposed to it. On NATO, uh, that's another because as you said, Chris, today is the NATO meeting. So Trump has both been critical and then also also been expanding mm -hmm. for reasons yeah. that are not totally clear to me. Nope. He shares that, by the way, with his predecessors. All his predecessors criticized NATO for burden sharing, especially the Obama administration. Robert Gates, who was his uh, uh, secretary of defense, told Europe essentially that NATO was – doomed to failure unless you guys share more of the burden and take more responsibility for your own security. There was very sharp criticisms going all the way back to Eisenhower of this problem. Uh, and uh, so that's nothing new. Yeah. What is – it is true, Trevor, that that on Donald Trump's watch, two new members of NATO have been admitted into the alliance. On Donald Trump's watch, on his authority, by his orders, the size of the U.S. military presence in Europe and especially in Eastern Europe has grown. Uh, the the nature of the relationship even with Ukraine, for example, as much as we focused on the criticism of him withholding military aid, he ultimately did provide military aid to Ukraine, something that, that President Obama did not do. So uh, I think there is more than enough evidence to suggest that he is not a, a retrencher. He's not talking about retrenching. He wants these things to be done on his terms and in and sort of reflecting well on him. And so I will say this. If when President Trump took office, uh, four countries in NATO were spending a minimum of 2 percent of GDP on their defense. Now seven countries are spending a minimum of 2 percent of GDP on defense. And some projections say it will be maybe 10 or 11 or 12 countries by the time. He will claim credit for that. He will claim credit for doing that. Um, and it will be impossible for anyone to disprove that, right? Post hoc, ergo proctor hoc. Proctor hoc. But um, what I find, I, I take some some sort of perverse encouragement or sort of, sort of take this as, a, as a, a, a welcome sign. More people are saying that that kind of behavior on the part of Europeans in particular is welcome news. Once upon a time, people would have said, no, 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 we definitely don't want countries doing that. So notwithstanding Bob Gates and all the way back to John Foster Dulles, notwithstanding members of, of, of presidential administrations talking about burden sharing, there has been an underlying sense that if forced to choose between a Europe in particular that does more or a Europe that does less, most in the foreign policy establishment preferred a Europe that did less, a Europe that was dependent upon the United States and therefore compelled, virtually compelled to follow our lead, that's the word that was used, um, and that is less likely to be true coming out of the Trump administration whenever that happens. John, to your worry about every – like so many people want to do just whatever the opposite is of what Trump's into, that it will drag – where he's dovish, it'll drag both parties into hawkishness. Does that get pushed back on a bit by the fact that, again – Setting aside what he actually did well in office, his his rhetoric during the campaign was 
much less interventionists than we're used to, and he won. Um, and so do we – is there the possibility then that whoever the nominee is next year um, or in four years or just down the road that people will feel more willing to embrace a more restrained foreign policy because they've seen that you can get elected by doing it? Yes. So it's not across the board what I was saying before. And I think a perfect illustration of that is to take a look at what the Democrats are saying, uh, the, the Democratic contenders for president this time around, 2020. Um, you know, It's not a consensus, but there's broad agreement that we need to uh, pare back the post 9-11 activity that we've been engaging in. You know, there's phrases like ending endless war and stuff like that. These are topical. These are salient. And I think uh, on the Democratic side, they do have a recognition that their constituents, their base prefer a less activist military policy. And so, yes, uh, I think that that will stick in some respects. And I also think this is an opportunity or a, it's sort of really an, a, a, a moment for us to talk about what we're for, because it's not just enough to be against the wars that we've been fighting, which have ultimately not redounded to American safety and security, and I think on balance have undermined them. Um, the United States was, was an example for the rest of the world for most of its history. It worked for us. It worked well. And there is still support for that. There is a modicum of support for diplomacy and trade, which are other ways to engage in the rest of the world does not sort of pull, you know, pull up the pull up the drawbridge, so to speak. That is not what most Americans support. Most Americans are are open to the argument that uh, we should op we should be cooperating with other countries as opposed to threatening them, both our allies and our adversaries. Uh, and so there is a an alternative. We do not simply have to return to the primacy model that Donald Trump took a wrecking ball to, nor to embrace his protectionist uh, approach, his sort of, again, sort of pulling up the drawbridge approach. There is an alternative, and that's what we try to articulate in this book. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at freethoughtspod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. Libertarianism.org's podcast, The Pursuit, is back with Season 2. It features real stories of people who are pursuing happiness in the face of pernicious institutional forces. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.